This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Discover the nation's art at artuk.org and follow Art UK on social media on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Have a lie down on the couch as we delve into the fascinating and sometimes surreal connections between art and psychoanalysis. It's a relatively young field of psychological theories that begins with one of the most famous names of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud. Freud really started the field of psychoanalysis based on learning to work with his own dreams, which I think is really interesting. That's Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst and host of the Rendering Unconscious podcast. Instead of seeing them as some sort of haphazard functioning of the brain trying to discharge its impulses or whatever scientists and neuroscientists saw them as at the time, he started to see that they actually had meaning. And even though he was trained as a neurologist, you could see even in his really early papers before he formally developed psychoanalysis, when he was writing about brain functioning, that he was looking at it in a more meaningful way than I think a lot of the other scientists and medical doctors at the time. And he started listening not only to his own dreams and kind of keeping a journal about his own associations to his own dreams, uh, which he integrated into his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, which was published in 1899, but he dated it 1900 because he wanted to be of like the new century. Uh, (laughs) He wanted it to look modern. So he wrote about his own dreams in a disguised version in The Interpretation of Dreams. And then he also listened to his patients' dreams and started seeing how they had a lot of childhood memories and fantasies and meanings other than just this kind of idea that they were just a discharge at the end of the day of some sort of biological processing. How does he know that his dreams had a wide fit? You know, like when you're talking to someone and you're like, oh, you know how such and such and everyone's like, no, that's just you. Like, how did he know it wasn't just him and his interpretations? Totally. I think that that's where psychoanalysis kind of took a wrong turn. And especially not even just Freud, because Freud was trying to find these different meanings and and apply them widely. But then really all the analysts, like the generation after Freud, they really took that as like, this is the template. And they started blanketly applying it to all people. And I think Mm. that's where psychoanalysis and psychology in general takes a wrong turn. I think it's much more important to see what the individual's associations are to their own dreams and to not tell them, oh, you dreamt of this person, that means this, or this, you know, you dreamt of the ocean, that means it's the unconscious, like giving these blanket symbolic meanings to things. I mm-hmm. think that's not useful. I think it's better just to ask people what they what they think of their dreams, what that person might mean to them or how they see them in their lives or what that object in their dreams or symbol means, because then you get the individual's associations, which might be very different from the analyst's. Psychoanalysis may have started by looking at dreams, but Freud quickly began looking at similar processes that occur in our waking lives as well. 
the way I think of it is instead of thinking that you have an unconscious mind that you're sort of in when you're asleep and then you have a conscious mind that you're in when you're awake, seeing them as kind of one and the other and that they're separate, I try to think of it as that there's the, they're like a continuum. So even when you're asleep, you still have one eye open, they say. There's still kind of an awareness of your environment. And anyone with little children knows this. If something happens to your child in the next room, you wake up, you know, and you go attend to them. So there's something uh, in your consciousness that's still aware of your external environment when you're asleep. And the same way, when you're awake and conscious, there's something going on in your unconscious still. And you have these sort of memories coming up throughout the day based on what you're doing, different associations and fantasies, imagination. So I think of it as like a continuum that flows. Maybe when we're in a meditative state, we have more of our unconscious mind present than when we're like fully awake and that sort of thing. Throughout his research, Freud wrote about the arts, including a 1910 essay on Leonardo da Vinci psychoanalyzing the artist's paintings. In the essay, Freud writes about the Mona Lisa's mysterious smile and how the appearance of similar smiles in Leonardo's other works suggests some sort of fascination with the feature. Freud also wrote about how Leonardo was first raised by his birth mother before living with his father and stepmother. Freud argues this experience of having two maternal figures presents itself in works like The Virgin and Child with St. Anne, where we see the infant Jesus with Mary and her mother Anne. Freud notes that the mother and daughter appear similar in age, as Leonardo's mother and stepmother would have been. He kind of took pieces of art apart as if they were a dream. So when he would analyze dreams, he would look at all the different pieces of the dream and like to try to figure out, decipher what they symbolize like a detective. And then based on what he thought they symbolized, kind of got the unconscious meaning inherent in the dream from that. So he applied the same sort of method to art where he would look at all the different symbols in a piece of art and try to figure out what other layers of meaning were in the art based on that, which of course art historians have done over time. And and of course, also a lot of artists really do use these kind of specific symbols in their work, especially back a couple of centuries ago. Artists were aware of Freud's work and the surrealists were particularly interested in his studies. Andre Breton, a co-founder of the movement, had trained in psychiatry and techniques from psychoanalysis were thoroughly integrated in the surrealist approach. Even Freud's grandson, Lucian Freud, would come to work in the surrealist style towards the beginning of his career. So the Dada movement was happening kind of at the same time as Freud. And then that, of course, led into the Surrealist movement. A lot of the Dadas were in the Surrealist movement. And the Surrealists were really open about reading Freud and using his ideas in their work and trying to use dreams in their work and get to their unconscious. So Freud would say that the dreams are a royal road to our unconscious mind. It's a way in. And Surrealists took that really literally. And of course, they also used a lot of games, like they tried to use games of chance, or they did the exquisite corpse. Tristan Zara of the Dada movement did the cut-up method. They tried to kind of short-circuit our conscious mind so that they could get to more what the unconscious processes were. And they do automatic writing, like Freud said, you know, in psychoanalysis, when the patient is laying on the couch, we use what's called free association, where we tell patients to just say whatever comes to mind, even if it sounds really random or weird. You just want to go with the kind of flow of your consciousness and not try to edit yourself or put yourself in too much of a cohesive narrative so you can let your unconscious out a bit more. And the surrealists and the Dada artists tried to do that through writing. They do automatic poetry where they would say poetry kind of spontaneously 
really in front of an audience and just see what happened and let their unconscious have a lot more freedom in that way. Vanessa mentioned the exquisite corpse game, which is a lot less macabre than the name would suggest. The way it works is that one person writes a sentence or starts an image on a section of paper and folds it so that it's hidden. They then pass it to another person to carry on with that sentence or image without knowing what's on the paper, thus creating an abstract, complete piece. On the Art UK website, you can find an example by Andre Breton that shows the mixed match images that can emerge. The idea of that is that in psychoanalysis, that we develop these fantasies that make things seem more coherent than they actually are, and that this is something we do in our waking life all the time, that people are very used to kind of creating order and patterns, even where there isn't really any order or patterns. We constantly are looking for them and making them. Salvador Dali was particularly fascinated by Freud and read his work extensively. He's famous for the uncanny, dreamlike quality of his work and first began experimenting with this style around the time that he read Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams. They say as soon as it was translated into Spanish, Dali read it and became obsessed with Freud. And so when you look at Dali's works, of course, they look really dreamlike. And it turns out he was reading Freud and intentionally working with his unconscious through his artwork. And when he met Freud in 1938, when Freud finally had to flee Vienna because of the war and he was being persecuted and went to London, Dali wanted nothing else but to meet Freud. Apparently, he had tried to set up a couple of meetings with Freud before and, and it hadn't worked out. And uh, one of Freud's friends and analysis, Arnold Zweig, arranged this meeting between Dali and Freud. And while Dali was with Freud, he sketched Freud. And he talked specifically about the piece he was working on at the time or had just finished called The Metamorphosis of Narcissus. And he wanted to talk about narcissism with Freud and kind of the meaning of narcissism and having like doppelgangers or doubles in your life. The interesting thing about Dali as well is that he actually was named Salvador Dali, but he had an older brother who died in infancy that was also named Salvador Dali. So he kind of carried that with him throughout his life. And he wrote a lot more about it than I think people realize about what it meant to him to have the same name as this deceased brother and like how that affected him in his life. Dali was also an associate of Jacques Lacan, a French psychiatrist who emerged as a provocative voice in psychoanalysis from the 1930s. Lacan had many ties to artists and was even Picasso's therapist for a period. He was a lover and collector of art and once owned Gustave Courbet's Origin of the World, which is a painting you can learn more about in our episode with the Vagina Museum. He was surrounded by all these kind of great artists when he was growing up as a teenager, and he actually used a lot of surrealist ideas, including he was good friends with Salvador Dali, and he would read Dali's writings, and he integrated like Dali and Breton's early writings into his way of thinking about psychosis when he was treating patients in the hospital. And his kind of doctoral thesis or dissertation used a lot of surrealist ideas in it, but he, of course, left that out at the time because because he didn't know what his kind of medical superiors would think about him, you know, using the ideas of these avant-garde artists. And he only came out and talked about it more explicitly later. But he contributed to Minotaur, which was the magazine that the Surrealists had, and things like that from early in his career. The women of the Surrealist movement were often sidelined at the time, but I think they bring an important personal element to their work. We see artists like Dorothea Tanning, Frida Kahlo, Leonora Carrington, and many others exploring themes of identity, personal relationships, and sexuality. Leonora Carrington's work is very dreamlike, and she often 
and Max Ernst, right? They often incorporate kind of fantastical images in their work, whether it's these kind of hybrid beings that are male and female or like part horse and part human or part bird. They use a lot of horses and birds and these kind of alchemical blendings of people and places and animals and you know when they lived together in Paris they kind of created a whole garden filled of these kind of creatures to protect their house and to kind of inhabit their garden which is really fascinating to think about as well. From the 1930s the Surrealists attempted to persuade renowned Dadaist Marcel Duchamp to officially join the movement and while he did collaborate on some of their publications he never officially joined. Nevertheless, there is still a psychological component to his kinetic sculptures, which Breton encouraged Duchamp in making. He created the first more kinetic sculpture with the bicycle wheel. And I love the way that he created that because people, when they think of Duchamp, they think of him consciously kind of trying to come up with these mind games, cognitive games that he's sort of playing with the audience. But like with the ready-mades, for example, he said that when he first created the bicycle wheel, he had the bicycle wheel planted on the stool in his studio and that he did that just for his own pleasure because when he would spin it it would kind of be like staring into a fireplace like people would enjoy staring into a fireplace and kind of get visions and kind of fantasy like material when they would look in a fire Um, but he would spin it and kind of just watch the wheel go around and it would help like spark his imagination and creativity like a proto fidget spitter. <laughs> totally. And he also ended up going from that and creating all these rotor wheels uh, and started working more with movement and these kind of optical illusions of these wheels spinning that people could sort of stare into and kind of get into this altered state of consciousness. From looking at examples like Duchamp's bicycle wheel ready-made or the surrealist use of automatic writing and the exquisite corpse game, we get an understanding of how the magic of an artwork can sometimes lie in the manner it's created. In these cases, the process is just as important as the end result. We can look to Francis Bacon for a further example of this. He's actually a wonderful example because he starts out, like say with his popes, being obsessed with Velasquez and Velasquez's pope. Right. And like he apparently bought so many pictures of Velasquez's Pope and just like (laughs) painted them over and over and over again. As we could see, he has a lot of different versions, but he had them on postcards. He had them in his house. He had them in books, but he would walk on them. They were strewn throughout his studio. So he said like then because of like walking on them or him having been drinking and like just making a mess. Generally, he'd get pieces of paint on pictures of Velasquez's painting. But then those kind of scrapes ended up giving him new ideas of ways he could work with his own paintings. So he would integrate the kind of mistakes and mishaps that happened accidentally into the final piece of work. And he would end up sometimes just throwing paint on his paintings or taking a rag and just blurring it. And of course, when it came out right, it came out so beautifully and like really his work can be really stunning. But apparently there are tons of pieces of his that he totally destroyed because he felt that he had ruined them when he when he did these kind of accidental or chance workings with them. Psychoanalysis can offer interesting insight into the motivations and processes behind an artist's work. And these factors have changed over the centuries as artists have moved towards creating art for art's sake. 
through time, you know, the church and state and uh, had control of like what the artists were doing and they would integrate their own kind of personalities and ideas in subtle ways in these pieces that were commissioned. But then, of course, with the avant-garde artists from Freud's time until now, like the late 1800s till now, people have been able to express themselves more freely with their art again and like use their own mind and inner workings and dreams, even like Edward Munch and artists like that. And so that's become more and more of one side of artists, people working with their own internal experience and trying to express that rather than being so rigid about what they're trying to express as far as like making it look perfect or making a landscape or a person's portrait look just a certain way. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please make sure you've also heard episode 51 discussing representations of madness in art. For images related to this episode and for more information on Vanessa, you can head over to artuk.org where you'll find this and other Art Matters articles. You can also explore interesting artworks in the Freud Museum collection, including mummy portraits. As always, thank you for listening and please join us again next time.